Hey, good evening. Welcome back to another week of BSF. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. And uh, we're going to be looking tonight at the Gospel of John, Chapter 7, the Festival of Tabernacles. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to be in your word. We also thank you, Lord, for the gift of your spirit uh, that helps us to understand some of the challenges and the difficulties that we have with believing and accepting that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Open our hearts tonight, Lord. May your spirit be working that we can hear from you through your word this night. Amen. Well, if you live in the United States, you probably have just gotten done celebrating the uh, the Feast of Thanksgiving. Uh, you, you might know that there's a story of the first Thanksgiving, which may or may not be factual, but it was a feast that was attended by the pilgrims and some Native Americans following a bountiful harvest, one of the first harvests that was made by the pilgrims here in the United States. And while a lot's changed in our, in our culture and our lives since that time, the core of Thanksgiving for probably you and for me this past week was a large meal that probably most of you probably consumed some turkey and some stuffing and maybe something made of pumpkin. Uh, there was an opportunity that you were with other people, uh, and it was uh, a feast that was done uh, out of the bounty of the harvest, uh, a time of celebration, a time of joy because of what has been provided and the people of Israel celebrated a similar feast. It wasn't called Thanksgiving, but their harvest feast that was prescribed by God was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And the feast was uh, two purposes, two parts. One was to definitely celebrate the harvest, and the other part of the feast was to celebrate God's provision for the people of Israel during the time of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, and they were called to celebrate their harvest feast in houses or booths made of branches. And uh, it was prescribed by God in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. Uh, you can also read more about it in Deuteronomy 16. It was a seven-day celebration. So rather than just one day of Thanksgiving like we have, seven-day celebration that was bookended by a solemn festival, uh, a solemn gathering of the people. One of the other requirements that was associated with the Feast of Booths was that all of the men of Israel were called to appear before the Lord in a place that the Lord designated, usually at the tabernacle, three times a year during three different feasts. One of them was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, one was the Feast of Weeks, and the third was the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, and so the place of, of gathering during the first century, during the time of Jesus, would have been in the city of Jerusalem at the temple. And so during this festival, all men were to appear before the Lord. Perhaps uh, biblically the best Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, ever celebrated by the nation of Israel, uh, was captured in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. It was celebrated by the exiles who had returned from the land of Babylon. They were back on the land of Israel. And during the feast, Ezra, the high priest, read from the book of the law. Uh, this would be the first five books of the Old Testament. And every day of the feast, he did this for about four hours a day. He read from the book of the law, and Nehemiah 8.12 says, The people went away with great joy, because 
they now understood the words, the words of the law that had been made known to them. And I think this is the, this is the secret to true joy. This is the secret uh, that, that is available to all people, is that God brings understanding and God brings joy to his people through his word. Uh, and, and the word that was walking around during the first century was none other than the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see in John chapter 7, Jesus at this Feast of Tabernacles. We're going to see the understanding and the joy that Jesus offers to the crowd, and we're going to have a chance to see their response. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, open them up. We're going to go through John chapter 7 tonight. Let's go ahead and get started. We're going to look at this in two broad divisions. Uh, The first one is going to be John 7, 1 through 24, which is really uh, Jesus moving to the feast and then his initial teaching. And then we're going to look at 25 to the end of the chapter as the response of the people and the Jewish ruling council uh, that John, the author, refers to as the Jews. So uh, we see what Jesus' original plans were for the feast, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Jesus was planning to stay in Galilee because the Jewish leadership wanted to kill him. Where do you find the Jewish leadership? Well, they're in Jerusalem. And so as Jesus' time had not yet come, uh, the time of his final lifting up, his crucifixion, uh, Jesus was avoiding the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to see that over the course of the next few chapters. Uh, this indicator of my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. We heard it initially at the wedding feast in Cana in Galilee when when uh, Jesus' mother says, can you turn water into wine? And Jesus says, my time has not yet come. And so again, Jesus' time has not yet come. So throughout chapter 7, the time has not yet come. But uh, Jesus's brothers are are recommending that he make the trip because uh, there's going to be a lot of people there. And if you want to be a public figure, if you want to have a successful ministry, this is your time. Uh, They didn't have the internet. They didn't have YouTube. They didn't have Instagram. And so if you wanted to reach a lot of people, you had to go to where a lot of people were. So go to Jerusalem Go and show yourself off, show your skills, show your ministry, because a successful ministry means that you're in the public eye. And this is your time, Jesus. Now, uh, John reminds us that they were speaking from a position of unbelief. So uh, Jesus ends up ignoring his brotherly advice, and we see that in verses 6 through 9. Jesus says, it's not my time. Your time is always here. Uh, Go ahead, go to the feast. Uh, The public that you're referring to will receive you because you're among them. The public that you're referring to will not receive Jesus because Jesus has been testifying that the works and the deeds of that public, that worldly system, are evil. And so the brothers can go to Jerusalem with no fear. Anytime you want to go to Jerusalem is fine. You're part of the system. Jesus uh, has a different plan, different time that will be established by God. But yet, we see in verses 10 through 13 that Jesus does go to the feast privately. Was he disguised? I don't know. Were his disciples with him? I don't know. Uh, But Jesus goes privately to the feast, and even before he gets there, we see the people in Jerusalem are divided. They're wondering if Jesus is going to be there, but they also wonder Who is he? Is he a good man? Is he leading the people astray? Verse 12, some people were looking for him and they're saying, where is he? And there was muttering. 
Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he leads us astray. And so people were divided. Jesus' own family was divided. Uh, People were divided about who Jesus was and what kind of person he was, what kind of teaching was he bringing about, what was the ultimate destination of those who would follow and believe in Jesus. We see that Jesus begins uh, in the middle of the feast, verse 14, he shows up and he begins teaching, and now there's unity. There's unity because the people universally marveled at Jesus' teaching. And the question they wanted to know was, where does such knowledge come from? This man never studied. He never studied in the places that we were used to people studying. If you wanted to be, uh, if you want to be a great doctor, if you want to be a great engineer, uh, if you want to do great things, even in our country, you have to study, you have to put in your time, you have to learn from people who are more advanced than you are. And the people of Jerusalem were saying, he's never worked with our rabbis. We would have known about him. We would have seen him. Where did this knowledge come from? And Jesus explains his knowledge in verses 16 through 19. He says, my teaching, my wisdom, my knowledge comes from God. He doesn't say it so clearly as that, but he implies that his work that he's doing, he is bringing glory to the one who sent him. Let's read what he says. Uh, Verse 16, Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus has reminded us again and again that he is from God. He is delivering God's teaching. And the question that he leaves the crowd with, if my teaching is from God, why are you trying to kill me? Why kill me if my teaching is from God? Well, the crowd has an answer for Jesus at this point. Verses 20 through 24, the crowd says, you must have a demon. If you have all this knowledge and you have all this wisdom and you have all this insight, you must have a demon. That must be the source of your knowledge and your wisdom. And uh, the, the, Jesus goes on to explain that you know the problem that the Jews have is in the way that they're rendering judgments. The conclusions that they're arriving at are erroneous, just like their conclusion about Jesus being demon-possessed. Uh, Jesus points out that he did a work to bring about wholeness in a man. I, we don't know exactly what healing it was. Perhaps it was the healing in John 5 at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, but Jesus goes on to point out that the way that the law operated, even in the present day, was that work, healing, uh, even circumcision, things could be done on the day of the Sabbath. Uh, If it was okay to circumcise a newborn child, according to Mosaic tradition, on the eighth day, even if that day was a Sabbath, that was bringing about uh, a sense of healing, a sense of ingrafting of that child into the Jewish community. And so what is wrong with healing Uh, on the Sabbath, on the the day of rest. Uh, Jesus condemns the people and he says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The principle for this first section is that clarity comes from the author, 
not from the reader. Clarity comes from the author, not from the reader. Uh, back in the year 2000, Vicky and I were sitting in front of our 15-inch cathode ray tube computer monitor, and we were waiting for a song to download from the internet. Uh, it was a new song, uh, and we were looking forward to hearing it. But in those days, internet speeds were 56K kilobits per second. So to download a song could be a while. Uh, It was a song that we had heard before, and we wanted to listen to it again, and it was a song by a new band called Coldplay, and the song was called Yellow. Great song. We listened to it a lot, but invariably, with a title like Yellow, and with the color Yellow featuring prominently in the song, it led to many conversations in our household about, what do you think this song is about? What are they singing about? What is it about the color yellow that is so significant? And, and, you know, we each had hypotheses and ideas and perspectives that we had. And lo and behold, we ended up hearing an interview with the band. Uh, and, and the person doing the interview said, hey, tell us about the song yellow. What, what's it mean? And so, you know, we're there like, okay, we're going we're gonna to hear, you know, which theory we have is correct on what yellow means. And the, the singer said, you know, well, uh, you know, the, the word yellow just sort of fit with the mood of the song. And it was like that there's nothing. There's, there's no meaning. There's no story. It's like we, we needed a three, is it three syllables? Whatever it is. We needed a word that kind of, you know, rhymed with yellow, and we just couldn't come up with a different one, so we just used the word yellow. So there it is. Isn't that rough when that happens? When, when you have a belief or an expectation or a paradigm in your mind about what something means or what something's going to be like or how someone's going to act or how someone's going to respond to you and it doesn't happen. You know, the, the, being disappointed about what a song title means is one thing, but misunderstanding um, a, a relationship or misunderstanding the intent of a person can be hard for us to accept. And as Jesus was revealing God's will to the people, they struggled with it because they had a paradigm and they had an idea and they had a framework that they were using to understand who God was and how he works in society and culture and history. And, and as Jesus begins to speak and teach in, in the city of Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, people's perceptions and their paradigms were being knocked down. Perhaps you've experienced some of that as you've studied God's word with us in BSF this year in the book of John. Uh, God has been revealing truth to you from his word. He's been revealing parts of your life that maybe you're out of line, out of step with lives of someone who should be following Jesus. Uh, Perhaps your perspectives about the way God works in history, what God's love looks like, what forgiveness looks like, what compassion looks like. Uh, Who should take vengeance? How should I be angry? How should I respond to sin? Perhaps those paradigms have been challenged and, and you felt things that Jesus crashes into and you're, and, you're, and you're maybe trying to brace some of that. Unwilling to hear the words that Jesus speaks because the reality, friends, is not everything that you and I believe to be true really is. And when the truth of Jesus comes and crashes in to our misconceptions and our half-truths and the lies that we've built up around us, something has to give. 
Something had to give in the lives of those people in the first century, and something has to give in your life and in my life if we are going to accept the truths that Jesus offers in place of the confusion and misconceptions that we hold dear. Now, as we go on, we're going to see the response of the people in verses 25 to the end of the chapter. Uh, and, and we're going to, you know, I'd love to be able to say, hey, Jesus, Jesus clarified it with everybody. And, and they got it. And everybody figured it out. But that isn't what happens. Uh, people begin to go on and they begin to wonder, like, look, hey, this is the Christ. You know, even the authorities know that this is the Christ because he's doing all these things. He's teaching so powerfully. If he wasn't the Christ, why would they let him speak openly and say nothing to him? And other people are like, no, 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 no. This can't be the Christ. Uh, we know where this man comes from. And we're not going to know where the Christ comes from. This can't be the Christ. And so Jesus begins to pick up on some of these themes in his teaching, and uh, he begins to talk about this issue of his origin in verses uh, 28 and 29. And he says, the person that gave me this teaching also sent me. And it asked the question of the crowd, who do you think it was that sent Jesus? Well, the Pharisees realize they got to do something, and so they, be, they attempt to arrest Jesus in verse 30. We see people beginning to believe in Jesus in verse 31. Many people believe. Uh, and so there's this ongoing process of, of belief and unbelief. Uh, we see that the plan to arrest Jesus fails because God's plan is thwarting the plan of the Jewish leaders. There's a conversation that happens around the time of the arrest in verses 32 through 36. Jesus points out that his time here is going to be brief. If I'm annoying you, don't worry. I will only be here for a short time. He is returning to where he came from. Now, we know as readers that that's back to the Father. But the people were confused. Where is he going to go? Where could he go that we can't find him? And, and the place that Jesus was going back to the Father, how do you get to the Father? Well, there's no road. There's no kingdom that you can go and knock on the door of. The pathway to the Father comes from belief in the Son, belief in Jesus. Now, keep in mind, friends, that people in earshot of this conversation, many of them did not believe. But some did. And, and so don't hear the words of Jesus in this section as saying that the kingdom of heaven is close to you. Uh, that's not true. Belief in Jesus opens the door to the kingdom of heaven. But many people, those trying to arrest Jesus, did not believe. And so where he was going, they could not go. Jesus will invite his disciples and others. He will say to them, where I am going, you can't follow right now, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. There is a place, friends, for those of us who believe in Jesus to reside with him forever in his Father's presence. Jesus is working on it right now. Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast during the solemn assembly. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus set this notion of belief alongside this concept of water and of drinking. Uh, and, and you and I know from our experience with water that water brings refreshment. Uh, it is a source of beauty. Oceans and rivers and lakes are majestic. It can be a place of relaxation. Maybe you swim. Maybe you boat. Uh, but it's a place of relaxation, relaxation and peace. Without water, we die. Water is a source of life. And so it's a good parallel 
for belief in Jesus. It brings many of those same things to the souls of thirsty people. Well, the people continue to be divided in verses 40 through 44. Uh, the, the issue of who Jesus is, should we believe him, should we not believe him, has not been resolved. People are still in disagreement. Uh, we see the report in verses 45 through 49, the report of the failed arrest, the frustration of the Jewish leadership. Why didn't you arrest him? Nobody, on, and nobody in this room, none of these Jewish leaders have been so fooled by his teaching, except for maybe one. We hear from Nicodemus again in verses 50 through 52. Nicodemus stands up and he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Here's Nicodemus recommending, hey, maybe we should follow the law. Maybe we should do the thing that the law says to understand more about who Jesus is, more about his teaching. Maybe we should interview him. Maybe we should talk to him. Maybe we should find out where he's from. Uh, He is vetoed by the Jewish ruling council. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Ironically, there's a few that uh, are probably from there, Jonah and Nahum, most notably. And second of all, Luke, the evangelist uh, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, was able to determine where Jesus truly was born by speaking to Mary, by speaking to people that knew him. Luke was able to uncover the truth about Jesus' birth, born in Bethlehem because of a census not because his parents lived there. The Jewish ruling council was not interested in facts or truth. They were threatened. Their paradigms were under attack. They weren't interested in that happening. The principle for this section is that Jesus is available for any who come to him. Jesus is available for any who come to him. I was hiking in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan many, many years ago. Uh, this group that I was hiking with, we'd been on the trail for about 15 days. And uh, at this point, we were fantasizing about fresh water, cheeseburgers, hamburgers, anything from 7-Eleven. And uh, our, our one of the reasons we wanted water was that the way that we had been purifying our drinking water for the past two weeks was to boil it for two minutes. And this, this gave water that was drinkable, but with a strong smoky aftertaste. Uh, there's just the smoke water is, is, it'll keep you alive, but it just lacks that that freshness. And we were on a dirt road. We were near a house and there were two guys at the house and they yelled and they must have known by the way we looked that, you know, we were dirty and thirsty and tired. It was a hot day. And they said, Hey, there's an artesian well just past the house. Help yourselves. I looked over at the guy that was leading that day. I was like, do you, do you know what an artesian well is? And he said, no. And I I didn't have any idea either at that time. We were, we were pretty young. And, uh, you know, we kind of waved and we sort of felt like, you know, we're, we're just going to keep going. We're going to hike on. We were proud. We were young. We were strong. We're just going to keep going. And we sort of felt like the guys that were supervising our trip, they wouldn't want us to take this kind of help from some people in the UP. And so we just walked on and we sweat and we drank our smoke water and we kept going. And later that night, our leader said, Hey, um, why didn't you guys stop at that spring of fresh water? 
and uh, that that moment has lingered with me for for 25 years. Um, My pride, my ignorance resulted in in me and my entire crew missing out on the simple joy of smoke-free water. Um, And sometimes I think that that can be our response to Jesus. Jesus is offering himself as, as bread that really satisfies, that water that, that satisfies the thirsty. He is making himself available to anyone who would come. But our pride and our ignorance and our arrogance and our preconceived paradigms about the way that the world is supposed to work, they result in a saying, I'm all good here. We hike on. The right response should be, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. And I have made the mistake of walking past the things that Jesus offers many times. Um, It's never too late to turn around, friends. It's never too late to turn around. You know, we all have times in our lives, in our relationship with the Lord, where we just don't get it. We're like the Israelites or the disciples, uh, where we look at them and we're like, they're so foolish. They're so ignorant. Um, I think I'm like that quite a bit. Uh, Jesus is trying to reveal himself to us and to reveal God to us and to reveal spiritual realities to us. And we are looking for another loaf of bread and maybe some fish if we could get it and pop on some of that living water if I can have that as well. I think that Jesus knows that we are thick, scald. And, and close-minded and easily confused. And so the, the great offer that Jesus has for his people, and John clarifies this, uh, if you go back and look at, uh, in the offer of uh, living water that Jesus makes, that Jesus offers living water that's made possible by the Spirit of God who will remain and dwell within God's people and help us understand, help us judge rightly, Help us to understand what Jesus is offering, to see past the physical into the much deeper, more real spiritual realm that Jesus is speaking of. Uh, Friends, if you and I are stuck, if we're confused, if we're lost, if we're reading the Bible and we don't understand, ask God to help you. Ask the Spirit to bring clarity. Uh, and, And in the meantime, let us thank God for the gifts that he gives us of his word, of forgiveness, and of a spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that uh, you give great gifts. Uh, we're heading into a season of gift giving, and there's nothing that we're going to offer our friends and neighbors that is any better than you and your spirit uh, and the life that you give through your crucifixion and resurrection. Thank you, Lord, for John and for the insight you gave him to give us uh, a beautiful passage about the Feast of Tabernacles. Lord, I pray um, that you would help us to come to you, to set aside our pride and our arrogance and our ignorance, and to believe. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.